You're listening to WVEWLP 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's Community Radio, also streaming online at WVEW.org. This is the Vermont for Mystery Hour, a show exploring the Green Mountain State's strange past and present through stories that pique your curiosity and make your neck prickle. Beat the Sunday Scaries with me every weekend, broadcasting Sundays at 7 p.m., or catch the rebroadcast on Thursday nights. The opinions expressed on the Vermont Ver Mystery Hour are those of the host and guests, and don't necessarily reflect those of WVEW 107.7 FM. Hey, hi, hello, pals, and welcome to episode lucky number 13 of the Vermont for Mystery Hour. I'm your host, Meg McIntyre. Now, the summer is halfway gone, and that means season two of our show is just about halfway over, too, which also means that I'm in the midst of planning our third season to premiere this fall, including a huge Halloween extravaganza to mark our favorite spooky holiday. Do you have ideas of topics you want to know more about? Or maybe you're someone who'd like to be interviewed about your own research or Vermont project. If so, I'd love for you to get in touch at vermystery at gmail.com. That's vermystery at gmail.com. After the break, we'll be chatting with writer and historian Jason Smiley, who has been researching the famed Vermont spiritualist, the Eddy family, for more than a decade. Don't go away. Today's programming at WVEW is brought to you in part by Andrzej's Polish Kitchen, a food truck and catering service located at the Putney Road in Brattleboro, in front of the Black Mountain Inn. Andrzej's Polish Kitchen serves a variety of traditional homemade Polish cuisine, including pierogies, kielbasa, bigos, and more. The menu includes daily specials such as lemon rosemary chicken, Polak Ruben, burgers, and homemade soups, all prepared by me, classically trained chef Andrzej Mikianiec. We are open Thursday throughout Sunday, takeout and picnic dining style. Call 802-689-9906 for more information. Andrzej's Polish Kitchen is proud support of WVEW, Brateboro Community Radio. Do widzenia. I can hear blue money calling. But this old hangover won't let me go. Yeah, I know. It's Monday, and you're dragging your feet. Your boss was on your back all day, and you can't get out of your Saturday night party mood. Well, wash those blues away with Blue Monday every Monday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. here on WVEWLP 107.7 FM. I'm your host in the evening, Junior X, and I'll make sure you come out of these two hours of the blues feeling better than when you walked in. Junior, I heard you. Writer Jason Smiley has visited the High Life Ski Club in Chittenden, Vermont, a few times and enjoyed his stay. The club, based out of New Jersey, has been operating in Rutland County since the 1960s, 
and offers beautiful scenic views and easy access to the nearby ski resorts. But Jason's interest in the property isn't as an outdoorsman, but as a historian. You see, at one time, a farmhouse stood where the lodge now sits, and played host to visitors from all over the world. They'd come from far and wide to experience something unique, a seance conducted by the Eddy siblings, a famous family of mediums responsible for the town of Chittenden's reputation as spirit capital of the universe. And though the original building is gone, the current owners say strange things still continue to happen on the property. The Eddy family rose to prominence during the height of modern American spiritualism, a religious movement built on the belief that the dead could communicate with the living and pass on wisdom from the afterlife. Between about the 1840s and the 1920s, spiritualists toured the country and the world holding meetings and seances, with some accomplished mediums rising to global fame. Uh, the Fox sisters were known for being able to speak to the dead through uh, knocks. Um, you know, they'd hear a knock on the wall in response to their questions. Um, and then with the Davenport brothers, they created this uh, device, if you want to call it that, a, a spirit cabinet, which was really like a big wardrobe. And they would travel all over the world. And the two Davenport brothers would get inside this uh, wardrobe or spirit cabinet, and they would be tied up. And sometimes instruments would be placed in there with them. The doors would be closed. And and no sooner would the doors be closed than the instruments would be played and strange faces would be seen in the, the hole uh, between the doors. And then with the Eddie brothers, uh, they kind of took it to the next level. William and Horatio Eddie are the members of the Eddie family that we most often hear about when discussing American spiritualism. But they weren't the only Eddies who claimed to have supernatural gifts. Their mother, Julia Combs Eddie, was said to be able to see the future and talk to the dead, a fact that she originally hid from her husband, Zephaniah, who was particularly religious. But by the time their second child was born and began exhibiting similar abilities, it was becoming more difficult for Julia to hide. Zephaniah believed it was the devil's work and tried to pray it away. Or he would resort to violence, sometimes burning his children with coals or scalding water if they slipped into a trance. Of the couple's eleven children, only one was said to be without any supernatural talents. The legend says that the gift that the Eddies had, which included, you know, sort of all the things you would come to expect from uh, psychics or, or spirit mediums. They could speak to the dead. They could foretell the future um, and, and uh, things like levitation. Um, supposedly when the children were young, their bodies would be lifted up in the air and they'd be floated out a window and end up on a mountain somewhere. But this gift or gifts allegedly came from the mother's side, their mother, Julia. They say the female uh, ancestral line all, went all the way back back to the uh, Salem witch trials, and that allegedly they were related to a real witch that had escaped um, the, uh, the trials of Salem in 1692, and she escaped allegedly to Scotland with the help of friends and family, and then later returned to the U.S. and had children in this whole ancestral line that, that came down to the eddies. Now, I will add that I've never been able to prove uh, lineage from the Eddies back to anyone from the Salem witch trials. And I've tried very hard. I'm a pretty good genealogist, but I'm sure there's others out there who maybe will be able to do it, but I've never seen anyone, even within the Eddie family, um, who's been able to, to show proof of it. There are many legends about the strange goings-on at the Eddie home in Chittenden. 
According to the stories, the Eddie children didn't receive much schooling because strange things would always happen when they were in the classroom, like rulers and books flying in the air. On Friday the 13th in 1861, a meteoric stone allegedly fell on the Eddie's property, which the family saw as an omen of death. And within seven months, three family members had died. On another occasion, the children were said to have seen a phantom carriage driving through the property in the middle of the night, which then vanished. Eventually, their father sold them into traveling shows, and William and Horatio and their sister Mary Eddie Huntoon traveled around the Northeast and other parts of the country giving exhibitions for much of the 1860s. There are also reports of them performing in Canada and Europe, and even performing for Queen Victoria and Abraham Lincoln, though Jason says he's found little evidence of these events. They used a spirit cabinet, much like the Davenport brothers, and would sometimes call for members of the audience to tie them up to show they weren't using trickery or sleight of hand. In a few cases, spectators who believed they were frauds or thought they were in league with the devil would try to attack them or run them off, reportedly leaving them with injuries and scars. Eventually, in 1871, they returned to Chittenden and decided to set up shop there, and they built a circle room to conduct their seances and convene with the spirits. It was just this long rectangular room that they built um, as an addition to their house. And at the back end of the room, they had a stage built and they had what was essentially a closet that they would use now as their spirit cabinet. And the spirits told, um, I think I mentioned this before, the spirits said to the family that, okay, you're not going to do these, the touring anymore. You're going to have the seances you know, at your home in Chittenden. But William now is going to be the greatest spirit medium of all time. And he will now make the spirits physically materialize. And so the family began holding seances in their quote-unquote circle room and at a nearby rock formation called Honto's Cave. People came from all over to see them, but you couldn't just show up. Interested spectators had to write to the Eddie family and request a visit, and it was up to the spirits to decide who was worthy of an invitation. But if they were invited, what they saw was reportedly unlike any other spiritualist gathering in the world. So what he would do is he would go into this uh, closet or spirit cabinet and they would put a shawl up like a blanket over the door and no sooner would they have him in there sitting in a chair than physical spirits would come out of this uh, the space, the same space he was in. And they would look and sound like uh, departed loved ones or friends of people in the audience. And there were lots of other characters um, too that would come out, um, spirits of Native Americans and politicians would come out. Uh, there was a Martin Chittenden, a former governor of Vermont. And the, the newspaper started, you know, writing about this sensational thing, um, being able to physically materialize the spirits. And uh, they got a lot of buzz, 1873, especially 1874. That was kind of their big year. A big part of the Eddie's rise to fame was the attention of Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, a Civil War officer who was hired by the New York Sun to visit the Eddie homestead and write about his findings. After staying there for a week, Colonel Olcott came away believing what he'd seen was real, and wrote a letter to that effect that was published in The Sun in September of 1874. The story was such a sensation that a rival newspaper, the New York Daily Graphic, hired Olcott to go back and stay for 12 weeks this time, and he even brought an illustrator with him who recorded many of the images of the Eddy family seances that still exist today. 
During that visit, Colonel Olcott investigated every inch of the house, checking for hidden costumes or trap doors leading into the circle room, and even brought contractors and architects with him to inspect the building. After that experience, he came away believing that while some of the strange occurrences might be tricks, the physical manifestations had to be real. But not everyone was a believer in the Eddie's abilities. What's interesting about the Eddie's is that even going back to their days um, doing the spirit cabinet exhibition, they were allegedly caught in the act of, of cheating even back then. And there were times, for example, that someone in the audience, you know, they would put those instruments in the box and the brothers would be tied up, but the brothers weren't aware that some, basically some black like paint or, or lamp black, it was called, was put on the instruments and the brothers are tied up. The doors are closed. The instruments are played. They open them back up. The brothers are still tied up, but then they looked at the brother's hands and the lamp black was on their hands. So th- there were a few instances of things like that. And it always, you know, surprises some people that, well, how were they able to you know, do this new sort of act of the physical manifestations if they had been caught cheating before. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, well, they didn't have the internet back then. <laughs> I don't think word spread quite as, as quickly or as easily on, you know, them getting, them getting caught in the act of cheating. While Colonel Olcott was visiting, another man named Dr. George Beard decided he would be the one to debunk the family's supernatural activities. But when he wrote to the Eddies, the spirits denied his request. So he decided to show up anyway, in disguise. He arrived on a Sunday, the only day when seances were not performed at the Chittenden farmhouse. And by the time he was able to attend one on Monday evening, and after the Eddies had reportedly eaten all the trout he'd caught in a nearby river in the meantime, he came away feeling just as he had before, that they were frauds. Uh, He wrote a long uh, article in the New York uh, Daily Graphic, the same paper that was printing Colonel Olcott's letters. Um, And he said, yeah, this is all fake, no doubt about it. Every spirit that came out of the cabinet was none other than William Eddy dressed in costume or, you know, uh, changing his voice or whatever. But he was confident that he could mimic everything that, that the brothers could do with some, you know, cheap costume effects. And, you know, this created quite, quite a stir because so many people were, you know, believers in it. And it is hard to kind of wrap, you know, your head around it when you have audience members there who say they saw spirits come out, who they swear were their departed loved one. And, you know, there were times when people would come out and speak in different languages. There was a German music professor from Connecticut named Max Lenzberg. And he came one night and uh, some departed loved ones came out of the cabinet and spoke in fluent German to him. And so, you know, when you hear stories like that, it's just uh, fascinating because, you know, you wonder how, if, if it was fake, how did the brothers pull it off? The next year, 1875, was the year that everything started to fall apart for the Eddies, and their descent was partly triggered by another newspaper story. There was a newspaper article that came out that was supposedly by someone in the family that supposedly explained how they did all of their tricks. And they said that what was happening was people were dressing up in costume and there was like a hidden staircase in the chimney next to the spirit cabinet. But what makes that 
tricky is, you know, immediately um, one of the brothers, you know, wrote a response back in the newspaper and said, that's, you know, absolutely not true. Um, and, and he invited people to come to the house and see for themselves that there were no hidden doors, um, hidden staircases. And those were all things that Colonel Olcott had already investigated. But at that point, it was too late. Too many people had heard the stories of their alleged tricks. Their popularity began to fizzle, and tensions among the members of the Eddy family also began to deepen. Yeah, they just did not get along. There were a lot of reports of physical fights between family members, um, and they, you know, they were selling off parts of the land, talking bad about each other. Sometimes they would go to spiritualist conventions down in Lake Pleasant, Massachusetts, and they would all be at the same event, uh, but they would each have their own tent, and they would be saying, well, they're not real, but you know, they don't have any real powers, but I do. Jason has now been researching the family for over a decade and is hoping to release his first book about them, slated to be the first of three, sometime this fall. It will cover the family's entire history and, according to Jason, bring to light some pieces of information that have never been publicly shared before. He's also been working on a screenplay for several years that focuses on Colonel Olcott's visit to the Eddie's Chittenden house. And he wants that project to highlight that the seances were the work of the Eddie family, not just the Eddie brothers. One of the things that, about my version of events in the screenplay that I think is really important is a little bit more emphasis on the female aspect of the story because they're almost always referred to as the Eddie brothers. But again, Mary especially was just as important to their story. She was involved just as much, but you know, because of uh, the time, she didn't get the attention that she should have equally with them. You know, when people are talking about modern American spiritualism, you know, they always point back to the Fox sisters as the, the birth of modern American spiritualism came through them in 1848. And they get a lot of attention, rightfully so, and the Davenport brothers as well. But I feel like the Eddie brothers, they haven't really gotten the attention they deserve. Um, you know, like we said earlier, even if the story, you know, if they were hoaxers, it's just such a fun, incredible story that, you know, I love telling it, love sharing it, and, you know, can't wait to to get the book out about it. You can find out more about the Eddie family on Jason's website at jasonsmiley.com. We'll be right back. With about 30,000 horses in Vermont, it's very likely you'll meet one on the road. Be alert and be cautious. Horses react unpredictably, so look to the rider for guidance, follow arm signals, and keep your cool. Motorists should slow down and pass wide around the horse. Riders stay in single file on the right-hand side of the road. Drivers don't honk the horn or rev the engine. Mutual respect may save a life. Brought to you by the Vermont Horse Council, Vermont Farm Bureau, and University of Vermont Extension. Welcome back, folks. It's now time for Murder, She Rates, the weekly review segment with mystery lovers in mind. This week, I want to tell you about the novel The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Magazine writer Monique is astonished when she gets word that she's landed a huge assignment. Iconic movie star Evelyn Hugo, who hasn't given an interview in years, has specifically requested Monique as the writer for a rare cover story with Vivant magazine. And when Evelyn tells Monique she's chosen her not just for the magazine piece, but as the writer of her biography, Monique isn't quite sure what she's gotten herself into. And it won't become clear until Evelyn finishes the telling of her entire life story. 
This one is a little outside of what I'd usually pick, but I really enjoyed it. The narrative switches between Monique's perspective and Evelyn's, taking us back and forth between the present, when Monique's listening to the story, and the past when it occurred. There are also excerpts of Gossip Magazine articles interspersed throughout, giving the reader a window into what the world was thinking about Evelyn Hugo, even when they had no idea what was really going on off-screen. I especially enjoyed the way the writer sets the scene in Old Hollywood. The real mystery at the heart of the story is how Evelyn and Monique are really connected, and why she's chosen her, seemingly at random. I will say that I figured it out before the big reveal, but I still thought the writer built the tension well, and made it so you couldn't quite be sure, until Evelyn explained for herself. Overall, I'd give The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo 3.5 out of 5 skulls. Let me know your take on the book at vermystery at gmail.com, or shoot me some ideas for future reviews. That's all for today's show. A big thank you to Jason Smiley for chatting with me about his research into the Eddie family. The Vermont Vermystery Hour is written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg McIntyre, with research help from Matt Bruno. Our cover art is by Jenny Stoos, and our theme music is written and performed by me and my pal Nikki Seafried. If you liked today's episode, check out the show wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to leave a rating or a review. You can also follow the Vermont Vermystery Hour on Twitter, Ever Mystery Pod. Let's beat those Sunday scaries, friends. <laughs>